Hey, welcome to En Route, the journey of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This is the podcast where we'll explore the who, where, why, what, and how of religion and other topics. Well, just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. Many of us have already received our booster shots for COVID-19, and we were all kind of starting to think that maybe, just maybe, this pandemic is at an end. And then there was Thanksgiving Day. That was the day that we started hearing news from South Africa that there was yet another variant out there. It was doctors and scientists in South Africa that were among the first to identify this new variant of COVID, which ultimately was named Omicron. Right now, it looks like Omicron is highly contagious, but that it seems to give people a mild illness. But there are a lot of questions. Will it stay that way? Or will Omicron get worse? Do we have to put our masks back on? Will the vaccines work? Will the booster vaccine work? Is, is all of this going to be basically Delta the sequel? Well, I have a whole lot of questions concerning the coronavirus, and I think when I have questions, there is one person that I'd like to talk to, and that's Michael Siegel. Michael is an astrophysicist with a vast knowledge of all things scientific, especially the coronavirus. He is a fellow writer with me at Ordinary Times, and I spoke to him about what's happening with the coronavirus. We talked a little bit about that and vaccine hesitancy, and also even a little bit about the lab leak theory. So if you have any questions about about Omicron, Michael is your man. We're going to end the podcast talking a little bit about the intersection of faith and science. But for right now, let's hear from Michael about COVID. Michael, it's good to have you back. Uh, good to be back. So um, I think the first thing we want to um, start talking about is of um, some updates on the coronavirus. And um, of course, now we have a new um, variant that's out there, Omicron. And um, I, I actually just said that wrong. It's Omicron. Um, and this is kind of a bad way to, as someone, a friend of mine says, a bad way to learn the Greek alphabet. <laughs> um, but do you, as the news is kind of coming out, especially from South Africa, that um, it seems to be easily spreading, but it seems to be, at least right now, causing um, more mild in, um, infections instead of um, kind of what we've been experiencing with the Delta variant. Um, what are you seeing um, long-term with Omicron? Is it, do you think it's going to be something probably as, as on the lines of Delta and in, in filling up hospitals, or, or could this be a sign of kind of towards the end of the pandemic? It's really hard to tell right now. I mean, we only found out about this a couple of weeks ago, 
There were some new results published just this morning um, indicating, and these are based on very preliminary results, only a handful of studies, that Omicron does Omicron does evade immunity, whether that's from a vaccine or from prior infection. Um, there are hopes that, so the antibodies don't respond, but respond as well, that it has a huge reduction in their effectiveness. But there are indications that the uh, booster can uh, enhance immunity enough to counter that. And, in the, and they're hoping that the, uh, you know, your immunity isn't just one layer, it's multiple mm-hmm. layers. And so even if Omicron gets past the first layer and infects you, that the second and third layer will keep uh, severe disease or death from happening. And the preliminary indications, very, very preliminary, are that that might be the case. Um, there were hopes that it was mild. Right now, we're seeing hospitalizations shoot up very fast in South mm-hmm. Africa, but they're small numbers. So it's, again, hard to tell. Um, I, it will be probably a couple of weeks before we know. And you know, South Africa has a low rate of uh, of vaccination. Uh, they have had, they've probably had, based on the excess death data, a lot more cases than we think because they don't have the testing facilities that many uh, more wealthier countries have. But um, it's looking, it's not looking very good right now. Mm. Um, it all, it already is in this country. I think it's actually a lot more widespread than we think. We're seeing cases rise pretty fast. One of the things, the U.S. is good at many things, but um, surveillance of genotypes is not one of those that we are very good at. So as was, you know, as several people have pointed out, this was first identified in South Africa. Doesn't mean it started from there. No. And and so we it, this could be a lot more widespread than we think right now. So uh, hopefully we're, we're getting, we're going to get more information. And just to explain to your audience what variants are, um, when viruses replicate, it's almost like a game of telephone that, you know, it, when you remember you, you played that game as kids, you'd whisper something into someone's ear and they whisper it. And by the time it got to the end of the line, it was incomprehensible. Every time a virus replicates, there's a chance of a change in its genetic code. And most of those changes are, don't matter. They're, they're harmless or don't have any effect on it. And they're actually useful because we can use them to track infections you know, sort of like there are these families of viruses, we can track their spread. But sometimes those mutations make a change in the function of the virus. With Delta, there was a change in the spike protein. That's the piece of the virus that attaches to your cells, lets the virus invade, take over the genetic machinery and make more virus. With Omicron, it has a lot of changes to the spike protein, but it is still the same functional form that other that the coronavirus has always had. And so that's why there's hope that prior infection, and especially with the booster vaccine, that will mitigate some of what we're seeing now. But it's still too early to tell. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because have, taking a few weeks to figure this out is science at the speed of light. I mean, that's not something that without the resources we've built up over the two years of the pandemic, we would be able to do. And being able to even have preliminary results at this stage is, is stunning. But um, I would suggest, you know, people have been saying this since Omicron broke out. You know, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you if it's been more than six months since an infection or vaccination, get boosted. There's a really good results coming out now that the boosters really ramp up that immunity. Um, kind of like, I mean, we've seen this with vaccines before. You know, you get 
multiple measles vaccines. You get multiple vaccines for tetanus. And each one will build your immunity. Say the first measles vaccine gets you to 90% immunity. The second one gets you to 95%. The third one gets you to 99%. And measles is so amazingly infectious, you need that kind of protection. Mm -hmm. So the hope is that you know, with the booster, that's, that's putting up people's immunity. The immune response we've seen right in the initial results is better than what it was after the first two shots. And so there's, there's a hope that this is going to be building up long-term resistance so that even as the virus continues to evolve and change, we will continue to have resistance. You know, that we can knock this down to the point where even if it becomes endemic, something we have to deal with for good, it's something that we can mitigate to it so it's not nearly as, as, uh, as damaging as it is right now. And I think when we talk about variants, um, I guess what I want to get at is that variant, it seems like variants are things that does just really continue as the virus continues. Um, if you think of H1N1, when that was from the 1918 pandemic, it sounds like from what you're saying, we're still getting different mutations even a century later. Um, it's just that they're not as we've built up in some, in some ways, built up some immunity yeah, we had, and all I mean, that. we had the H1N1 come out a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, this, it was the same strain of flu that caused the pandemic, but it wasn't as damaging because we responded a little better. We were quicker on the draw. So, I mean, the Spanish flu, it's called the Spanish flu because it was first identified in Spain. They think it actually broke out in America. Yep. It was kept secret because uh, there was a war on and it was thought that it would be bad for morale to have a deadly flu breaking out which the virus didn't care about our morale. It just spread. But um, yeah, when H1 came, when we, we had vaccines, so that knocked it back a bit. We had people had been exposed to flu viruses before, so that knocked it back a bit. We had much better health care, so that knocked it back a bit. And as the coronavirus has gone on, we've learned more things. We've learned that certain steroids can dramatically improve the chance of survival. You know, we now have these... Uh, uh, antivirals that are that have been developed that are still in uh, that just finished phase three testing that might be able to to help so uh you know when i when this first broke out i sort of compared it to a war you know i a lot of people don't like that analogy but i like it in terms of saying that this is a long-term thing this isn't going to be solved in three months you know we're developing weapons the virus has its weapon which is mutation and I think we will eventually get, I mean, you wrote a post the other day, a really great post about, you know, what will the post-pandemic world look like? Mm -hmm. And someone else on Twitter pointed out, you know, there are things we do for hygiene now that we just regard as routine, you know, washing mm -hmm. our hands, having indoor plumbing, not keeping the bodies where we keep our drinking water, that sort of thing. You know, the disease used to be way more common. You know, half of people used to die before they were five years old, you know, and we've just taken these things for granted now. And I think that we will eventually get to something with, with COVID, if it becomes endemic, where we will have something sustainable that we just get used to. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be, you know, during cold flu and COVID season, having more masking like they do in a lot of uh, Pacific Rim countries, uh, which they've been doing for many years and has uh, kept flu and cold sort of under control in those countries. It may be you know, getting vaccinated every year or two uh, to protect against COVID. It may be developing more antivirals. 
but uh, we are certainly in a better position now than we were two years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're very lucky that something like Delta or Omicron wasn't the first thing that came out because these are so much more infectious. The initial indications are that Omicron is maybe twice as infectious as Delta, Mm. which itself was twice as infectious as the original strain. If that had hit before we knew better how to treat people, before we had vaccines, before we had therapeutics, you know, it would have been a nightmare. And so uh, in some ways we've been uh, a little bit, I hate to say fortunate because a few million people are dead, but we, it could have been much worse. And I think this coming out now after two years of experience and, you know, we've made mistakes and we're, we're trying, still trying to figure out what is sustainable, not only scientifically, but politically and economically. I think we're in a much better position to deal with this than we were. So I think it's, so the long and short version of it is I think this is a concern. I think people should pay attention and obey mask mandates, get boosted, that sort of thing. But I don't think it's time to, I don't think we need to panic and freak out and think that we're going to go back to where we were in March of 2020. We're Mm -hmm. in a much better position right now than we were then. How kind of, I think you may have uh, talked about this briefly, but how amazing is it in some ways that Basically, we only figured out about um, Omicron three weeks ago, uh-huh. or at least that it was the uh, discovered or, or identified, and that, you know, this morning, I think we got news from Pfizer that they think that the booster should be able to help in all of this, that it seems like the pace of, of discovery and virology seems to be moving at a a very fast pace um, in ways that I don't don't think any of us would have imagined. I mean, it is kind of, I I made this comparison before, it is kind of a Manhattan Project level thing that we've done with developing these vaccines and getting to the point where when a new strain comes out, we can adapt. Pfizer is saying if we need a booster that has the Omicron spike, they can do that within three months. And that's amazing. I mean, in both the Manhattan Project and this, it's a demonstration of what ha- can happen when you just throw money at a problem and, mm-hmm. and don't worry about it too much. You know, um, it's not sustainable in terms in for you know long term, but in terms of dealing with a, a global emergency like this, uh, I think it's been it's been remarkable. And it should be said, you know, this didn't happen in a vacuum. A lot of scientists have thought that a SARS variant was going to come along that would be this bad. They've been studying this for years. Mm-hmm. You know, when it was first announced that a potential SARS variant had exploded in Wuhan, I, I, read, I saw an interview with a scientist that he canceled his vacation and came back to his lab to start immediately working on identification and a potential vaccine and so forth. And so I think the political response has been a little bit more mixed, but the scientific response of understanding what we were in has been very good. Mm-hmm. So you said that people were expecting or, or preparing for a SARS-like um, virus coming out. Is that because of SARS and then MERS had come out that they thought something else was going to be coming around yeah. pretty soon? And that was something that um, through several presidential administrations that uh, and around the world that people thought, you know, this is a potential danger. I mean... I think the ultimate testimony of relevance is that Hollywood made movies about a potential, you know, kind of SARS outbreak. But I I think a lot of people saw that when the first SARS came out, we got relatively lucky that it was kind of fine. It was 
in that case, it was a much more virulent strain that made people sick much faster and was much more deadly. And so it was, you know, the, the problem that COVID had was that it could infect people and it would be a while before they got sick and they could go around and infect people not knowing that they were sick. Whereas the, the initial SARS made people sick almost immediately. Um, so I think there was a lot of anticipation of, uh, I mean, there are people whose job is basically to worry about this stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of moving I think, on. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think the thing that South Africa with this being identified, you know, African countries have gotten very good at this sort of thing because of the Ebola outbreaks mm-hmm. that have happened occasionally. They have a lot of experience with dealing with these kind of pandemics, with vaccinating people and identifying and tracing, even in less than ideal conditions where you have, in some cases, civil wars going on, you know, and they're not obviously not as wealthy as we are. This is something that especially Central and Eastern African countries have taken very seriously with pandemic control. And so I think that the, even though, uh, you know, we tend to think of Africa as, you know, being, you know, kind of the third world and all this. There are a lot of people in in the continent who have experience in this, who were looking out for this and were able to identify this variant at a very critical stage. And so I think we owe a huge debt to the scientists in South Africa who figured this out. Yeah, I think what, what was fascinating is the um, because uh, South Africa being having been so used to dealing with HIV, yeah. Um, that they have a pretty st- strong background with virology, but also with, it, I guess, in some ways, um, surveillance, because they already have a way of going into communities and making sure people are taking their medicines and all that, so that because of that, they, I think, were able to kind of figure this out a lot faster um, than other places could have because of yeah. that experience. So. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's something that's important to remember, um, that we not immediately look at different parts of the world and think that they don't have anything of value to give us. And I think they do. Yeah, this is a demonstration that they do. Yeah. That this is, that this is a global effort, basically. Mm-hmm. So how do you think governments, especially here in the United States, will respond to Omicron? Will it the obviously we're not I don't think it sounds like we're going to be going back into any type of lockdowns or anything. But do you think that you will be seeing mask mandates coming back or I, I think it's quite possible we'll see mask mandates coming back. Um, one of the things that came out this morning was there and it's again very early. There's been a slight uptake in uptick in vaccination rates over the last few days. So I think a lot of people are taking this seriously. Um as we see more infections, as we start to see, we just got a notice from our local hospital that they're seeing, seeing a big surge in cases lately. Um, I think you're going to see um, probably mask mandates, more push on vaccinations and especially boosters, I think is going to be the big thing. And uh, hopefully uh, a lot of people will, will comply with that. Um, I don't know that even if you know, lockdowns were justified scientifically, I don't know that they're sustainable politically anymore. Because mm-hmm. I, I think after two years, that's, that's just not going to work. I think, uh, but we are in the phase where I think masks and vaccinations and surveillance. And I think one of the things that I think they really need to push on is uh, to make testing more available. Yeah. I, I think that that seems to be one of the big issues is um, that it's a 
it can be expensive to get uh, like a home test yeah. um, in some places. Um, and why haven't we been able to, to develop a way to either get it to be low cost, if not free for the testing? Um, because it seems like we've had two years to figure this out. Yeah. And other countries like in the UK, you can get basically a test a day. Mm-hmm. Um, what I under, from what I understand, this is not a subject I've looked into very deeply is the FDA has been sort of a roadblock there. They've been slow to approve tests. And this summer, one of the big test makers sort of closed down a lot of their facilities because they thought we were on the way down. And then suddenly we needed to ramp up. So it's this testing situation has gotten better, but I think there's still a lot of work to do on that because the more we test, the more information we have, the better we're off. Mm-hmm. And having people being able to test their kids before they send them to school or, you know, I'm not feeling good today. Maybe I should just do a quick test and make sure I don't have COVID so I can not go into work and get people sick. I think that would put a, a bit of a roadblock. Again, a lot of this, when we talk about pandemic mitigation, it's not about stopping the virus or getting the COVID zero. A lot of it's about just slowing things down. The more we slow things down, the less our hospitals get overwhelmed, the more chance science has to catch up. I mean, if we can push the Omicron wave even just a bit into the future, that's enough time for Pfizer to have their vaccine with the Omicron spike, if that's needed. The more we push it back, the more people can get boosted, the more people can get vaccinated. And so at this point, everything is about slowing things down so that we're buying time uh, to, to deal with this. And I think testing is a great way to buy time to slow things down. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think we are when it comes to vaccine hesitancy? Um, you know, there are people who I think legitimately still have not been necessarily reached, but obviously there are people that are pretty obstinate. Um, has that lessened over the last few months? Is it still pretty much the same? If you look at the polling data and the vaccine data, it does seem like it's lessening, not fast enough, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Um, but I think as as more people get sick and and, uh, and as this gets more serious, you will see, I think, uh, some of that vaccine hesitancy erode. One of the things I think that could be done to help with that is, you know, we focus a lot on, you know, sort of. Trump supporters and so forth who have been resisting the vaccine. But there's also a lot of resistance from people who you know can't afford to take a day off from work and so forth mm-hmm. or don't necessarily know that the vaccine is free to them. And so I think a big public information campaign and a push on employers to say, give your employees a day off if they get vaccinated. You know, the federal government will compensate you. You know, again, a lot of these things, you know, and they, those things would cost money, but you know, pandemics cost money too. So um, I, I think that, you know, there is there is still progress to be made on vaccine hesitancy in a lot of communities. Mm. How do you think our political culture is dealing with hesit- vaccine hesitancy and just coronavirus in general? Here in the United uh, States, I should narrow that down. Not, not as well as we could be. There seems to be you know, we've we've seen this in, in politics for a while now, a sort of nihilism of opposing things just because the other side supports it. And I think we're getting to the point where that's kind of unsustainable. Um, I don't know if that it will change, but uh, that's that's been a big problem. Hmm. What do you think 
when it comes to um, how do you think, especially there's been a lot of concern about um, President Biden and how he's handled this so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there have been some hope that early on when he um, started that we were basically near the end, that the summer was going to be kind of this summer of freedom. Of course, that didn't happen. And some of that was, I mean, a lot of that, of course, was out of his control. But um, how do you think he has handled this so far? Is there room for improvement? There's certainly room for improvement. Um, I think that it's, it, the job he's done has been okay. I think the the vaccine mandate, as controversial as that is, was the right thing to do. I think, um, you know, pushing more on the FDA to get more testing out would be a big thing. You know, there was a, a sort of flutter the other day because his uh, press secretary sort of joked, you know, well, should we send free tests out to everyone? And I was like, yeah, we should. <laughs> That'd be a great idea. Um, so I, I think that, you know, they've, they, it hasn't been perfect. There's been, I think it's been better. Um, I mean, just having an administration that is on message, um, even if that message is sometimes a bit garbled or makes mistakes, you know, that, that was, you know, the biggest problem I thought before that, we sort of seem to go back and forth between taking it seriously and not taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that the Delta wave has caused a lot of people uh, to sort of be a little bit more serious. I think the biggest problem that we see in the in the political class has a ten- tends to be hypocrisy. That when you see politicians saying everyone should wear masks and then they're not masked, or don't have big gatherings and they have big gatherings, you know that really I think feeds a lot of the skepticism and and so forth. You know, I, I said this at the last administration and I'll say it with this one. You know, you have to set an example. You know, you have to say we're going if we're going to pass these rules, we're going to obey them too. So if a mask mandate comes down, we need the politicians to be masking. You know, if they say don't have big gatherings, they need to be not having big gatherings and not saying, well, we can have big gatherings because it's important. You know, so I think that I think is the biggest misstep that both sides have been making in this um, of, of basically looking like hypocrites that, you know, going to fancy restaurants and stuff like that and, and so forth. I think that's a, that, that is a big thing that, uh, that they need to do. I also have thought from the beginning that having sort of maybe not Biden specifically, but someone in his administration to do kind of fireside chats where, you know, maybe they do a YouTube video where they say, here's where we are with the pandemic. Here's where we are with Omicron. This is what we think right now. This is, you know, this was an idea that we thought, but it turned out to be wrong. You know, someone like, um, I can't remember the name of the head of the former head of the FDA and or so forth, you know, maybe a scientist or something like that who would do these, you know, sort of on an official basis the, to just communicate with the American people um, that I think that's important to just have that line of communication of just plain talking to people about where we are with this. You know, we when we fought World War II, that's what we did. We continually explained it. There were things we couldn't tell people, obviously, because it was a war, but we kept people apprised of where we were on things. And I think it's important uh, to keep that flow of information so that people feel like they're being listened to, they're being talked to, they're being engaged on this subject, not just having edicts handed down. What do you think about the whole discussions about the origins of um, the virus? 
Um, there has been a lot of talk about the kind of so-called lab leak theory um, in, um, that they think may have started at the uh, virology um, clinic in Wuhan. Do you put any stock in that, or do you think that that's a possible theory of, of something? Or I don't think that origin, point of origin can be eliminated. I think it's much more likely that it broke out the way we think it did in a, in a wet market and so forth, simply because those have always been identified as a potential weak point and so forth. But I think China's kind of opacity on the, on the issue has fed a lot of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I keep saying if you had a full and open investigation, even if it confirms that it was the wet market, that's going to put a lot more confidence in and not down. The conspiracy theorists will always find excuses. But I think a lot of the people who are sort of in the in-between, that, that will convince them. And I think knowing where this came from and having that scientific proof is kind of critical to avoid future pandemics. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were to discover it was a lab leak, that would have very big implications for lab safety in the future. Uh, if we confirm that it came from the wet market or from some similar origin, that would have other policy implications. And so I think that having a, that full and open investigation, which I don't expect China to ever do because secrecy is in their nature, um, not, not the Chinese people, but the Chinese government, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But I think if that were to happen, it would be very, I think that's very important. That should happen, even though it's unlikely to. Okay. Um, I think moving to something that is related um, to all of this talk about science is kind of the relation of science and faith. Um, Growing up, um, I grew up kind of from a a Christian evangelical background and would say that there was, at least from people in the church, and I didn't always agree with it, but there always sometimes was a lot of suspicion of science. Um, I remember in college being talked about um, creationism that basically kind of rejected the evolutionary theory, um, basically trying to use the Bible as a science book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering for you, um, um, from your background, what is, how has, has your faith um, influenced science and how does that, how do, has it influenced your view on things concerning science? I mean, I don't see faith and science as necessarily opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's a lot of people on both the religious side and the scientific side who also see it that way. I mean, you'll probably find a lot more atheists in science than you will elsewhere. But there have been, you know, a lot of famous scientists who were very, uh, who had very deep faith. Um, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, for example, who discovered pulsars. Um, you know, she's a Quaker, very deep faith. Um, she recently won a very prestigious and uh, lucrative award, but because of her religious beliefs in living humbly, she donated every penny of that to scholarships for women and, and other people who uh, don't generally get into science and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan Sandage, who uh, uh, I met and who had a lot of, did a lot of work in various fields, related to the Hubble constant. Uh, he was very religious. And uh, the one time I met with him, we talked about the Bible and, uh, and the veracity of Bible stories. And uh, he was someone that, you know, you could, you know, with fellow religious 
people would just say John 3.16 and say, oh, yeah, well, Matthew 4.25 and so forth. And they'd each know what they were talking about. Um, and so uh, so there and certainly there I mean, the Catholic Church has been very positive on science. Um, in the 1950s, they would have these meetings where they would gather a bunch of scientists into the Vatican to discuss issues and, and figure it out. So like one of the most seminal papers in my field of galactic structure is actually a Vatican conference proceeding hmm. from the 1950s. And, um, and so those, those things are not uh, necessarily uh, incompatible. Actually, that reminds me of a story. Um, one of the uh, scientists I work with, he was working on a radio telescope and it was uh, associated with the Vatican. They have an observatory and he, he said, late one night, uh, the uh, priest comes in, blesses the uh, equipment, throws some holy water around and walks out. He's like, all right. And he said, that night we discovered a pulsar. So it's, just, it's probably divine intervention there. <laughs> you might want to have him come in a few more nights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and to me, they're not irreconcilable. I mean, you know, if you want to get into nuts and bolts, you know, one of the things I used to talk about with my rabbi was, you know, the story of Genesis was told to people. The story was a creation story told to people in terms they could understand. Mm-hmm. That if, you know, let's say Genesis was dictated to Moses, if God had said, all right, well, hydrogen and helium atoms and all this stuff, you know, no one would have understood that. But you lay out the details that the universe had a beginning, that it has changed over time. You know, that, that's not, that's basically, you know, what science has confirmed. And so, you know, this is what uh, Sanders used to say that, you know, that we, we are confirming the details of a story uh, and so forth. And I grew up in a conservative uh, Jewish synagogue. And so we didn't take the Bible literally, you know, one of the, my uh, teachers used to say, if you read the Bible as history or as science, you're missing the point of the Bible. Um, and so I, I don't think these things are, are, are even remotely irreconcilable. There are a lot of people who have, who have deep faith who also believe in science. There are a lot of people who are very invested in science who have deep faith. Um, I don't think these things conflict with each other necessarily. And obviously, biblical literalism and some scientific concepts come will clash with each other. But uh, I don't think that for someone who is willing to invest the time and thought and uh, energy into it, that these things are, are, are not compatible. Um, kind of for me growing up as a Christian, I, I don't always, I kind of know and understand science and faith from that perspective. And so I'm kind of curious with Judaism, is there, I would say, is there less friction between science and faith than I would you would say with with other compared to other religions? I'd I'd be hesitant to say that. I think there might be, simply because in Judaism no one can speak ex cathedra, mm-hmm. and you know because of the diaspora, because we develop these multiple different branches of the faith. Um, no one can really come in and say this is the interpretation that everyone should have. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sure. So there are, I mean, Jews who have a very literal interpretation of the Bible and 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 so forth. But I think for the most part, um, that has not been a conflict I have seen much of, at least in my experience, even among I mean, even among Orthodox Jews. 
And, and again, it comes back to that thing of, you know, if you look at the Bible as a history book, you're missing the point that this is more about morals and, you know, acknowledging that there is something greater than ourselves, that there is a, is a God, that the universe has a purpose and so forth. And, and uh, so I, I would say it, it very much, I, I think also within, from my limited experience within Christianity, there's a lot of variation between different factions of the faith that some are more uh, compatible, you know, open to science, some are less. I'd say that is also true of, of Judaism as well. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about this the last time we maybe that we chatted is that I always think one of the most memorable things from the space program um, was from the um, Apollo 8, um, which took place around Christmas of 1968. Um, and one of the astronauts reading from um, the first chapter of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And to me, that seems to be kind of filling in what you're talking about, that this is not the Bible is not about science. It's not going to tell you how all of this was made. It's not here to tell you history, but it is here really to tell you the purpose um, in, in some ways also a sense of, to give you a sense of awe about mm-hmm. the universe that we live in. That, that, that reading in some ways was, I think, the proper place for um, religion that didn't necessarily, it didn't clash with science. And I think it, it actually melded with science in, in yeah. a way. I, I cannot imagine anything to inspire more both scientific and religious <laughs> awe than looking at the world from 250,000 miles away. Exactly. Especially when probably so few people have seen it. Um, yeah. And to see it be one of the few people in humanity that can, can yeah. see this, the earth rise in, in some ways. It has to yeah. be... And, and as, as Alan Sandage liked to emphasize, there are questions science can't answer. Mm-hmm. You know, the one he emphasized was, why is there something instead of nothing? Mm-hmm. And those are questions, you know, and I, I say this on like my second lecture when I teach Astro One, there are questions science can't answer. You know, if there's no data, there's no science. And so things like, is there life after death, reincarnation, what is the meaning of life? Those are not things that you can turn to science for. If that's those are the questions you're looking for, then there are religion and philosophy classes in the other buildings. But um, and I and I think that is important to to emphasize that science does have its limits and mm-hmm. the kind of questions it can answer. Do you suggest that are there ways that they can kind of bridge the divide between the two? I do, you know I do think that there are ways, obviously, that it's not as as big a chasm. Um, but obviously, it, there is some of a chasm because, um, as we were talking earlier about the coronavirus, um, there is a lot of kind of seeing science maybe in a way that's is dangerous or mm-hmm. or not really fitting with science or, or with religion. How do you think that the two? How are, can can scientists and and clergy find ways of bridging that gap? Um, to help people understand that these two things are not opposed to each other? I think mainly just having conversations. I think that, you know, like I'd mentioned the Vatican conferences earlier, I think that was a great idea because you get, you know, scientists and theologians talking to each other, and I think they find that their ideas are not as incompatible as they think. Mm -hmm. It's very easy when you see 
And whether this applies to science and religion or Republicans or Democrats and so forth, it's much easier to see people you don't know as the other and think that their ideas are crazy different from yours. Whereas when you talk and you learn what each other's thinking and see things through each other's eyes, I think that that kind of bridges those gaps. So having, you know, those things like the Vatican conferences, having scientists talk to churches, having you know, things like that. I think those are the kind of things that can really, you know, bridge those gaps and let people know that these these ideas aren't incompatible, that, you know, these are, you know, different ways of looking at the, at the same universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that is something that necessarily we need to do more. We haven't done it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that has, it sound, to me, it, it, it makes both religion and science the poorer for it um in that we for for those of us um on the the faith side that it in some ways helps us not understand our world much more um which i I think at least speaking as a person of faith and as a as a clergyman it makes it much less easier to really see god's role in the world if you don't understand it Um, yeah and I think for, for science, it's sometimes I think there are people who think that science can answer everything yeah. and it can answer everything. Nothing can answer everything. Yep. And, um, you know, there was a, a, someone once said that science can um, tell you the how of something or um, how something happens. It can't answer why it happens, yep. why we are here or things to that extent. Yep. I'd agree. So, well, thank you, Michael, for this um, time to talk a little bit about getting an update on um, the coronavirus and about faith and science. Um, always good. This is science has always been something that I one have not been good at in some ways, but wish I were because it's always been fascinating, um, especially for some reason physics and. Physics, I was not good at math, but I could understand physics in some ways that was non-math um, looking at it. But oh, so it's I, always great to talk about. That's the thing that's that's I think is is always really fun that, you know, be, with with science, I think you can engage at any level. Yep. You can engage at just looking at pictures and sort of wondering at it. You can engage with the concepts. You can engage with the math. There are many levels you can engage on, and I would encourage people to engage on the level that they find comfortable with, because it is, we live in an amazing universe, and the more you learn about it, the more amazing it gets. And just to, uh, before we close out, in, uh, see, scheduled, fingers crossed, in two weeks, we will hopefully finally see the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which we've been waiting for for 20 years. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And uh, assuming everything works appropriately, it's going to really transform our understanding of the universe. So uh, hopefully that launch goes off on time. Hopefully everything goes well. And uh, in a couple of years, we'll be talking about some of the amazing results coming out of that. Yeah, great. I look forward to that. I've been hearing about the telescope for for many years. So I'm looking forward to seeing what it's going to tell us and tell us yep. more about the, the universe. Yep. So here's hoping it does take off. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. All right. Good to talk to you. Talk again soon. All All right. right. Bye.
I have to thank Michael for taking the time to speak with me again. Um, I always enjoy talking to him about anything related to science. I've always kind of considered myself a, a, a frustrated scientist. I was never that great with the math, which I think sometimes made it harder to um, at least do well in science. But I still have an interest in it and how the world works. And um, having um, Michael on is always an informative episode. And I'm looking forward to having him on again. Um, just a few notes, just as I've usually try to say at the end of a podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Um, take some time to leave a rating or a review, um, especially if you listen to this on Apple podcasts, leaving a rating or a review makes it a whole lot easier for other people to find this podcast and their search results. There is actually, I make it easy for you because there's a link in the show notes, um, that allows you to kind of, it hooks you up with your, um, whatever podcast platform you um, usually use and, um, kind of don't have to do a whole lot of rigmarole to leave a review. So the link is in the show notes. Also, don't forget that Enroot is also on YouTube. If you are someone that likes to listen to podcasts on YouTube, it's there. Make sure to uh, visit our website at enrootpodcast.org. That's where you will find um, some extra information, links to um, some of the articles that I've written, and other things. Again, visit the website at enrootpodcast.org. That is it for this episode of Enroot, a journey on religion and faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care. Godspeed. And have a safe weekend. Take care.